Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning and our online family as well as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of God's word this morning. Here's what I want to do to start out. I want you to react to the following statements. Go ahead. Feel free to react. And if you don't want to react, don't react. The Dodgers are going to win the World Series this year. We got a lively crowd. That's good. In and out has been closed forever. Oh, we know this crowd. Okay, you ready for this one? Gas stoves are illegal in your house. You not only have to remove them, but you have to pay now to put something new in. Yeah, I feel you on that one. Abortion is illegal in all 50 states. There we go. It's amazing by just one statement, you get to know a lot about somebody and see kind of where their heart is at with things. Sometimes you don't even know where your heart's at until an event happens or someone says something. I grew up going to the Family Fun Center out in El Cajon, and it was a sweet deal. We had bumper boats, batting cages. My dad used to take our baseball team there. Two stories of games, miniature golf, three different courses, and and they were good. Different colors, structures, different levels where the ball would drop. I'm pretty sure there was water stuff in there, this swinging thing that got in the way. And there was a legit prize center where you could bring tickets and get a legit prize. Not one of those where you had to get like a million tickets to get an eraser. Like you could actually walk out feeling like you got something decent. Unfortunately, because of COVID, it was a casualty and it's no longer there. And I drive by and I can viscerally feel upset that now it's gone and there's this gray, dreary, sad building in its place. I don't know what it is and I'm sure it's fine, whatever it is. But for me, it's sad. I'll never be able to go there. I'll never be able to take my kids there. And we live like a mile away from it now too. It's like, come on, you're killing me. I didn't know I'd feel that way. And my family knows about it every time I drive by just about and let them know. My daughter knows, she knows. (laughs) Last week, we saw Jesus do a climactic sign of his ministry. John gives us seven signs in the first half of the book of John. And the seventh sign is this climactic raising Lazarus from the dead. And then we go, well, what's next? Well, now we're going to get to see people's reactions. Now we're going to get to see people's hearts and how they actually feel about it. What are they going to do? Will they believe? Are they going to talk? What are they going to say? The leadership, what are they going to do about it? How about Lazarus? I don't know about you, but I want to hear what this guy has to say. What was it like? Was it like going under an anesthesia and you just kind of come back? I mean, did you go somewhere? Did you talk to somebody? What happened there? Today, as we look in John chapter 11 and a little bit of John chapter 12, we are going to see the following, that Jesus' resurrection sign, it not only reveals his glory, what we saw last week, it also reveals people's hearts. You get a really good idea of where your heart is at and where other people's hearts are at. You see the sign It's not just showing Jesus' glory. In a sense, it's also showing us our hearts. If you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to John 11, beginning in verse 45. John 11, beginning in verse 45. The rest of chapter 11 is going to be the reaction to Jesus' sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. There are at least three reactions here that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at them in turn. So verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, 
what Jesus had done. So we have two reactions. The first one is belief. This is great. And, and this was a group of Jews who were with Mary. Remember, they went with her to grieve. They were grieving hopelessly. And then now there's this great turnaround. They see the sign, they believe. This is exactly what the author John is getting at, to show the sign so people would believe. How do we incite faith in other people? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we want to incite faith, it is the word of God that we want to get in front of people. Now, what is the word of God? The word of God is the speech and the actions of God himself. There is nothing more powerful, nothing better, nothing more clear than showing people what God has said and done to incite the very faith that we wanna see in other people. So if we wanna see our loved ones believe, obviously we pray. It's, it's a work of God. As for us, we wanna get the word of God in front of people. We wanna get them to read it, get them to, to sit, read it, come back, dialogue with us about it. More than just us telling you or reciting a verse, which is great. Let's get them to see the word of God for themselves. First reaction, belief, the best. It's all downhill from here. The second reaction is, is hard to quantify because they see it and it doesn't say they believe, doesn't say they don't believe, but if they don't believe, obviously, right? They're not believing. And then they go and they tell the leadership. Now, are they telling on Jesus because they're trying to get him in trouble? Or are they concerned? Hey, I really wanna know your opinion. Like, what do you guys think about this? I think a lot of people can fall into that type of category. Something happened and we wanna know what so-and-so thinks about it. And it's not bad to wanna do that. We all go somewhere for biblical advice, biblical understanding, and even philosophy understanding or economics or politics, right? We have people we go to, but someone you go to can be really good and someone you go to can be not so good. And so when it comes to just a side note here, biblical, like who do we go to to really understand and get better at the word? I've been wrestling with that question. That is so hard to answer. It's near impossible, I think, for me to stand here and answer. You should go to X or here's how you know in four easy steps. It is, it's just more complicated than that. Because I could even give you an umbrella, someone could fit under it, but still not be so great. I remember being in seminary and I used this one source. This was my source and I got back a paper and you know what it said? This is not a scholarly source. I had no idea. I didn't know what a scholarly source was. And so slowly through going through that process with a professor, uh, I come to learn scholarly sources, things that are peer reviewed. And as the church, as we're in the church and we're listening and hearing other people, pastors, professors, writers, whatever, we want to be very careful and within the community, make sure we're listening and hearing from good people. Now, I'll give you some kind of framework. It's just really difficult. It's like asking, you know, what makes a good chef? It's like, oh man, how much time do you have, right? There's such a science to it. There's such an art to it. But I think um, biblically speaking, we want people who hold to the historic Christian faith. The Christian faith from the word of God has been tried and tested. It's been written. It's been put in creedal form for centuries. We have it. We want people that make sure they fit in that historic truth. People that believe in Christ. They're Christ-centered in the way they go about the Bible. People that also are gospel-centered. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. These are key things. I think of the five solas by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And there's one more, scripture alone, thank you. Those are fantastic things to keep in mind 
as we're looking to hear from other people. Now, I don't even know if that's exactly what they're going for here, but it's just something that triggers some other thoughts for me in looking through this. At the very least, they go and they tell on him. Now, here's our third reaction, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Sanhedrin gets together and they're like, what are we gonna do about this Jesus? We got the Jewish ruling council, the highest council in this part of Israel, 70 members supposedly plus a high priest. What are we gonna do? Notice something though that they said, he's performing miracles. They did not doubt it. They could not erase it. Think about it. How could you go back and erase what Jesus is doing? How can you refute a blind man who was blind his whole life and he can now see and he tells everyone it was because of Jesus? His parents agree he was blind. The community agrees he was blind. How do you refute that? How do you refute Lazarus? He's a walking, living miracle. He was dead. Everybody know it. They were crying. His sisters were crying. They put him in the tomb. Four days later, he comes out. You can't refute it. And so what do they do now? Well, they start to reason. Okay, can't deny that. And if he keeps going, Rome's gonna come and they're gonna take our temple and they're gonna take our semi-autonomous land away from us. They're so selfish here, so selfish. Jesus is doing Messiah acts of power and greatness, changing people's lives. People are following him and they stop and go, well, what about us? Our power, our influence is gonna be gone. They can't look past what they might lose to see all that they could actually gain if they would let go of these selfish things. I had a friend, she was two years older from junior high. And then we got in touch years, years later after I became a Christian. And somehow on some online source, we were talking and I was trying to witness and lead her to the Lord. And she said, I'm just not ready to follow Jesus yet. Have you ever had someone say that? I'm just, I'm just not ready yet. What are they saying when they say that? I'm just not ready. I don't wanna let go of my life. I don't wanna let go of being king and control or queen of my life. I would rather rule my life than have Jesus do it. But the funny thing is, is they're not actually the ones ruling it. It's the sin in their life that has mastered them and that has ruined their lives. Oh, if people could reason properly. Oh, let's pray for them that they could have spiritual discernment to reason through these things. By trying to hold on to all these things, you'll actually lose everything. Jesus said this, and we'll talk about it next week. If you will not let go of your life, if you want to hold on to your life, you will actually lose it in the process. But if you let go and you follow Jesus and you believe in his gospel, you will find everything and more. To hold on to your life actually is to lose it. To give it to him is to find everything. We continue here with the, with the leadership. Now we have someone interject, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. That is an ancient way to say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas steps in, I got a solution to the problem. Uh, why don't we sacrifice one person instead of sacrificing the whole nation? In other words, let's just kill him. Let's kill him. If we kill him, then no one else has to die. 
What do you guys think about that? Should we do that? And that's the solution that he brings to them. Now, this is interesting. Verse 51 here. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas unknowingly is being used by the Lord here. He speaks of sacrificing Jesus for political ends and God somehow directly or indirectly is speaking through him for salvation ends. It is so amazing. Don't miss this. God's sovereignty. God can speak even through a calloused heart that does not follow him or believe in him. Even unbelievers or hard hearts or people who want to stop God's work can find themselves actually participating in his work, advancing his work, even though they're trying to work against it. How amazing is that? This is incredible. People who are trying to, well, we'll read this verse and then we'll say it. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now they didn't make plans like, hey, um, next Saturday, let's, let's try to make this thing happen. If it doesn't, it's okay. No, they resolved. The Greek is very strong. They resolved to kill him. They are committed to killing him. It, it blows my mind, God's sovereignty. The very people that are committed to killing him are actually walking side by side, working with him, doing what he wants to do. And what God is doing for them is to save them in the process. Mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And I think it's good to reiterate that so we remember God truly is over all things and situations and people and their hearts. Our prayers are never wasted. It's the best thing we can do, right? Lord, open the eyes. Lord, lead so-and-so. God's gospel will go forth, even for those who go against it. So we have the three responses here to uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Those who believed, hallelujah. Those who are, I kind of qualify them as concerned, talking about it. It's hard to put a label on them. And then we have those who resolve to murder. Three different responses, yet there's two things in common. All of them could not deny what Jesus did. Nobody could deny it. That's what he did. He performed miracles. There was no getting around it. There was no denying the evidence. They had to make a decision. So firstly, it revealed the Jesus, um, that they couldn't deny it. Secondly, it revealed their hearts and how they felt in response to it. And that's what Jesus' signs do. They evoke faith and they also show you whether you have that faith or your heart is being hardened towards him. How about you for your heart this morning? When you read the raising of Lazarus from the dead, what does your heart do? Yes, I believe. Or no, I need to talk about it. I need to talk to someone. That's great. Come talk. We'd love to talk with you. Or is it like, no, I'd rather Jesus just die. Just get out of my life. I don't even want to be here. If that's the heart you have in response, I encourage you to repent of that. Turn to God and say, save me. Give me faith. Heal my heart. I know that I need you. I think about our culture and how it's tried to kill God in different ways. In history, it's tried to kill God as creator. How has it done that? Well, we got this theory of evolution. It's got severe holes, gaps. It doesn't really work. That's okay. We'll push it forward anyway. And they push it forward. And next thing you know, right, we don't need a creator. Who needs morality? If you really follow the evolutionary train, it is really bad practically and morally for society. If it's survival of the fittest and only the best should win and live and keep going, what does that mean? We got to do a lot of getting rid of certain people, right? And who gets to decide that? I mean, it gets bad. Let's play out the cards here. Killing God as creator. They've tried to kill God as educator. 
God was in schools, at least in America for a time, praying and reading scripture. From what I've understood, the Bible was a part of the first primer in learning for the young kids in schools. And then if my understanding is correct, I didn't deep dive into it. One person complained, and I'm sure that built into more. Hey, my son's being forced to read the Bible and to pray at school. Can't have that. Let's remove it. You want to remove God as creator, remove God as educator. If they want to remove Jesus so they can save, this is crazy. What are they fighting for, the Sanhedrin? We got to keep our land and we got to keep our temple. Well, check this out. Jesus comes and he's not only replacing the temple, the temple is going to be destroyed in AD 70. They're fighting for something they're going to lose anyway. Land, we got to keep our land. Oh, by the way, Rome's going to fall apart and they're going to lose the land that they hold anyway. You're not even going to be able to hold on to that. They're fighting for things that they can't hold on to and that they won't be able to keep anyway. And that's the life of us as humans. Will we hold on to our lives or will we let go and say, Jesus, take my life, save me from my sins. I believe you are the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the bread of life, the living waters. Save me, rescue, rescue me, be mine forever I trust in you. And when you do, you will never die. And when you do, you will have all things and more that God gives us. Verse 54 here. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? He's supposed to invoke a positive answer. He's, he's coming, right? You're, he's coming, yeah? We're talking about it. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus is aware of the plot to take his life so he escapes to the wilderness for the time because it's not his time yet. But good news is Passover. Passover is celebration time. And what are they celebrating? God's mercy. God's mercy and judgment. God was bringing judgment upon the firstborn, but he would mercifully save them for those who would put the sacrificial blood of the animal on their doorpost. And they're celebrating God's rescuing of the firstborn in Egypt. But you know what's really buzzing? It's not the celebration. It's Jesus's arrest. They're talking about his arrest. They're focused on that. It's like being at a wedding and you as the bride or the groom and you're wondering, where is everybody? And you go over here and they're watching a football game on the corner. You're like, excuse me, we're at a wedding. We're getting married. Like, what are you guys doing over there, right? They're totally misfocused here. And then they tell the people, if you see him, let us know. We're going to arrest him. This is crazy. Jesus's face, in a sense, is on a wanted poster. The Lord of glory is on a wanted poster by his own creation. Can you imagine coming home and you're driving, you're getting within a half mile of your house and you start seeing pictures of your face on telephone poles. And then you look closer, it says wanted. And you're like, that sure looks like me. Yep, that's my face. And someone else's phone number, what do they want with me? What are they doing? And you get home and your face is all over everything. And they want, and you're like, what are you doing guys? This is my house. And you're, I don't understand. Why is it? Why is it that Jesus' face is on a wanted poster? Here's the conclusion I came to. Because he wanted it to be on the poster. Because no one takes his life from him. Remember John 18, 10, 18. No one takes his life. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. It's on there because he allowed it, because he wanted it, because God is working 
in a most wonderful way to bring about life for human beings through the sacrifice of his son. How incredible is God to do that? And so we see here the reaction, the response to Jesus's raising of Lazarus from the dead. And there's different responses here. Now, the responses continue, except now they translate not to Jesus, but to his followers. Chapter 12, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Remember, that's where he was from, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So it's Saturday. It's the Saturday before Passover, the next Friday. Jesus is in Bethany. That's where Lazarus was, and they throw him a dinner. Who's throwing him a dinner? Presumably, it looks like Lazarus is doing it, Lazarus and Mary. But if you look at Matthew and Mark, they say that Jesus was at Simon the leper's house. So if I'm getting this right and putting it together and thinking it's the same event, which it seems to be, Jesus is in Bethany, but he's at Simon the leper's house. Lazarus is there. Martha's there serving. They're reclining on their left hands at this table not so high off the ground. It's about U-shaped, and their bodies are extending to the right outward with their feet sticking out. Sounds very comfortable, doesn't it? And you wonder, where's Mary? They're usually all together. I see Martha, she's serving, always seems to be working and serving. Anybody feel that way? <laughs> we got Lazarus is there. Where's Mary? Last time we saw Mary, if we got it right, it sounds like she was weeping in unbelief with the Jews, part of what made Jesus angry. Watch this. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What just happened? A woman shows up, Mary. She takes a bottle of perfume, breaks it, and she pours it on Jesus's head. John only records the feet portion. She lets down her hair, and then she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. What in the world is going on? When's the last time you did that for somebody? And if you have shorter hair, right, you really got to get down there. When's the last time someone did that? When's the last time you did that for someone else? It seems very strange, does it not? However, culturally, this is not strange. This is a high act of devotion. This is a deeply loving act of faith. And she does it in front of a whole room of other people, presumably men and women, doesn't care what they think, humbles herself in the most humbling way, pours out, which we're going to find out here shortly, a year's worth of wages on Jesus, lets her hair down, doesn't care what anybody thinks, because she, something has clicked. Something has clicked in her where she sees Jesus in a whole new light. I have a better idea of who I'm dealing with. And she shows it, not by saying it, but by moving here. Mary may never start a business. She may never have won an athletic award. She may never have done anything important publicly in her life. But listen to this. If you go with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 8. Look what Jesus says about this act. Mark 14, beginning in verse 8.
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus seems to see an act of faith here in regards to his death. He says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Nobody else got this kind of acclamation that she got. Peter didn't get it. John didn't get it. David didn't get it. Adam, Solomon, none of them. But we have this woman here, Mary, who presumably probably did nothing else that the public would consider of significance. But because she did this to Jesus, he said the whole world will hear of it as the gospel goes forth. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible act of devotion. No act of devotion is ever wasted on our Lord Jesus, whether it is a financial one like she did, whether it is a humbling one publicly like she did. Watch the response now, verse four. Back to John 12, verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was, this an, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? A year's worth of wages. He points out this is thousands and thousands of dollars for us equivalent today. He said, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is not pleased at this. He's disgruntled. This is a waste. Why didn't we sell it and give it to the poor? John thankfully helps us out. He shows us that behind this altruism, behind this just really good guy look, behind this, this concern for the poor, he really only cares about himself. At the end of the day, what was he doing? He was stealing money. So presumably he wants to sell it, take the money. Hey, we'll carry it in the bag for a bit so I can slip in and put some in my pocket. Judas was stealing from Jesus the whole time he was walking with him. Mind-blowing. Stealing the whole time. John seems to know about it. If not now, he probably knew about it later and they figured it out. The whole time he was stealing as he was walking with, the, it's like, how could you do that? Sometimes we do stupid stuff too. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Yet the Lord is so gracious to still love us. How he loved Judas still to the end is incredible. And how he loves his sheep and his children is truly a beautiful thing. The world doesn't understand those high acts of devotion. Judas didn't understand this high act of devotion to Jesus because his heart wasn't really for the Lord as we see in the end. My second job I had, I worked at a graphic company thanks to my sister-in-law and they would make these big signs where you'd print out graphics that were, you know, seven, eight feet tall and you'd get like four of them and you'd have to connect them like this. Do you remember those? Well, my job was to lay them down and put magnets on the back, just ever so perfectly on the back. And I would do that part-time. And there was a gentleman there, and so we used to talk a lot. And great guy, we got along, and he could not understand why someone would give money to the church. Don't understand it. Why would you do that? The world doesn't understand acts of devotion to our Lord because they don't understand the Lord himself. But if they understood the Lord himself, that act of devotion would almost feel like that's it. He's worthy of so much more, is he not? And I don't say that to make anyone feel guilty. I say that to say how great is our Lord and worthy of the actions and the devotions. The world may never know of Mary, the entrepreneur. The world may never know of Mary, the Olympic gold medalist, but they know of Mary, the one who loved Jesus. And is that not what Jesus said that we would be known by? 
or seven. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. I love this. Jesus actually sticks up for Mary, or for, yeah, for Mary here. He commands Judas, leave her alone. Don't touch her. Don't discourage her. Don't humiliate her. Don't bully her. You leave her alone. What she has done is an absolutely beautiful thing and it will not be taken away from her. How wonderful it is to see Jesus stand up for this woman who loved him. And I can't help but think how much the Lord would still stand up for those who stand with him today. You'll always have the poor, but me, there's only a little bit of time and it seems that she understood this more than the rest of those there. Verse nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, can you blame him? Can you blame him? You guys, we've got to go see Lazarus. Who wants to go hang out? Lazarus, old buddy, how's it going? If you got to see Lazarus, what question would you ask him at this point? He was just raised from the dead. What do you want to know? I want to know, like, did you just go to sleep and wake up really fast? Did you go somewhere? Like, what happened in that time period? You know what's funny? John doesn't care. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't bring it up. He says nothing. He is focusing here on the sign and people's reactions to it. So we're going to do the same. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You think, wow. First, they resolved to kill Jesus. And now same Greek word, they resolved to kill Lazarus. And you go, why? What did he do? No, really, what did he do? He did nothing. He died. And Jesus picked him back up again and gave him life. And then he simply said, that's the guy who did it. Lazarus really did nothing if you think about it. Can you imagine falling off a boat? Don't do it. Can you imagine dying in some way and then someone brings you back to life? You're in the hospital, you wake up. It's like, this is the guy who brought you back to life. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. You just acknowledge what happened, that's it. You did nothing. The rescuer did all the work. And we're not that much different than Lazarus. We were dead in sin dead in sin and our trespasses. And Jesus comes along and he wakes us up. He gives us faith. He makes us born again. We simply say what he did. And because he said that, because he did that, they want to kill him and take his life. Now, I think this is still happening around the world. We live in a country where it's not. Lord forbid it should ever be that way. But if it does, will we stop telling about our savior? How could I? I was dead. He made me alive. How could I not but tell people about my rescuer. And so we see in the story today, people that are for Jesus and people that are not. Those ones who are not for Jesus, the Sanhedrin and Judas, look what their issues were. They could not help but hold on to the things they were going to lose anyway. The Sanhedrin, got to keep our temple, got to keep our land. If they could only see the future, you're going to lose it. You're not even going to have it anyway. Judas, got to get some money, got to put it in my pockets. You're going to die. The money doesn't go with you anyway. And he ends up betraying Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. On the other hand, we have the Jews who believed, Mary who believed. They saw the sign. I opened up my eyes. I saw, they saw the sign. Do you see the sign? I pray that you would believe and your heart would be like, yes. And for those of you who do believe and you hear the sign again, I hope your heart says, yes, yes, I believe. Way to go. That's my Lord. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, and if your guy's right, we jump up and we chest bump. And girls, I don't know what you do, but you do your thing. We're excited by faith. It's a metaphor, right? 
Today we have seen that Jesus' resurrection sign reveals his glory and it also reveals our hearts. As you read it, your heart's being revealed. What does your heart say? Don't harden it. I pray that you would soften it towards his grace because Jesus is the only one that can save you from sin and death and hell. And he not only saves you from that, he brings you into the kingdom of light and gives you new life. He gives you the power of the spirit to walk with him and he begins to make you ever new and he will finish that task when he comes back and he will glorify you and make you completely perfect in the way that you were meant to be, completely dominated by the spirit, unable to sin, to walk in joyous harmony with the Lord forever. Do you believe in Jesus? I pray that you would. I'm gonna invite Linda Stafford up right now. She's gonna come and she's gonna share how her rescue her has taken her from darkness to light. Hi, test, oh good, okay, hi. Um, I have notes because it'll keep me from keeping you here for a half hour or hour. Um, it's not that I talk too little. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna read a bit so I don't get off track. I'm also really, really good at rabbit trails. Um, so I was born to two teenage parents. They divorced when I was young. I was raised with no boundaries, no purpose, and no spiritual life. By the time I was 25, this is gonna be hard because of the joy that Christ has given me and what he's done in my life. Um, by the time I was 25, I was a meth addict and an alcoholic, married to a meth addict alcoholic. I was very much into an occult church, you know, um, spirit guides and past life regressions, tarot cards and all the stuff God tells us to stay away from. Um, and I was absolutely hopeless. I had twin daughters and uh, the only thing I could think of is I would die and leave them or someone would take them away from me. Uh, God led me to a 12-step program where I learned to pray to my creator. <clears throat> At the same time, I was detailing new cars and the cars came off the trains with two Christian radio stations set by default. So I'm home praying to my creator, thou, you know, take all of me, and learning that it was Jesus Christ. And so there, a couple months into that, I got on my knees in my um, living room and asked God to be my Lord and Savior. And then I asked my husband for a divorce <laughs> because he was the person, I wanted to leave the person that I just got rescued from being. Um, but God led me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and in that there was a promise that he would sanctify my home, and I stayed. Um, and that was my first experience with prayer and surrender, changing me um, and seeing the results. And I needed a lot of changing because I was really an angry person. My family would experience fits of rage for hours um, at a time. I was so insecure, I tried to control everything around me, but I had no self-control, especially in the area, now that drugs and alcohol and cigarettes were gone, credit cards and food. I mean, it just kept going. Um, but my family got to see all that change, all that change. Um, and this is where I bring Joe's testimony in for those of you who knew him. Um, I sat next to empty chairs in recovery rooms and in churches for six years. Um, but God blessed us with 25 years in Christ um, together and as a family. And he went home to be with him nine years ago. It was the most painful thing 
I've ever experienced. And at the same time, I was never void of the most profound peace. And the Branch family had a lot to do with that. My family had a lot to do with that. But I really learned prayer and surrender again. Prayer and surrender and being in God's word and obedience to it. Um, <clears throat> oh, this is the most important part. Because when I came back to church, that empty chair meant he was with Christ. And that, I cannot explain what a miracle that was in our life. Um, so my testimony's common. I mean, kind of. <laughs> God took two broken people from broken families. He gave them new life, a foundation to build our own family on. My girls accepted Christ young. And when that happens, you think, oh, good. Thank God. They'll never have to, right? Um, but they're his children. And they grow, he grows his children through seasons of needed prayer and surrender. And as he's walking with me, I had to watch him walk with them. And I just know his faithfulness. Um, I wrote, because I love this phrase, um, a lot of my surrender is letting go and watching God take them, as C.S. Lewis calls it, further up and further in. Now I've got a third generation of grandkids that I have a feeling God's going to walk me through. Um, and I, I had some words to finish this, but on the way here I heard, um, gosh, songs, right? And it's where, where are you in that trial? It's a new song. I haven't heard it. Where are you in the addiction? Where are you in the broken hearts? Where are you? And the answer is I'm where I've always been and where I always will be. And as Anthony mentioned last week, he's with us. He's walking with us. And he goes before us. I can tell you a zillion stories of him walking before me, and that's why the door was open when I needed it to be. My daughter um, runs retreats in January. I'm going to end with this. And she was you know, given a verse by God, a theme, six months prior. Um, I had it printed out to pray over it when, whenever I had a chance to look. But... Um, We've kind of been living it in our family, and there's a lot of people in our lives right now that need this every day. And so I'm going to read it to you because it's the God I know. But this I call to mind. Therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Thank you. As I was listening, I was just thinking, our God is powerful. That's what the gospel is. It's God's power to save. And not just to save us from our sins, but to save us from all the other struggles that we have. His power is available to us in prayer. His power is available to us as parents. His power is available in broken marriages. His power is available in depression, heartache, drugs. We heard it. It's not too hard for God to rescue. And so I encourage you, all of you, call out for God. Maybe it's for you need salvation, call out to Jesus Christ, save me. An addiction, save me. A struggle, save me. A broken heart, heal me. God is the power. And I think of Psalm 46. Psalm 46. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are powerful. And thank you that you have graciously shown us your power in Scripture 
and not just that in people's lives. No one can deny Lazarus lived. No one can deny what you have done in Linda's heart and in her, in her husband's heart and in her family. And no one can deny what you have done and are doing in us. And we praise you. Lord, give us the grace to call out to you for our, our brokenness and our needs. And Lord, give us the grace to, to lean upon you for all things. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.